the funny thing about inner genius is that it's smarter than you think. This is my conversation with Vicki Helm. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repton. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. Well, if you're trying to make the most of your life, the one thing you probably should do is tap into your inner genius. That is something that my guest today, Vicki Helm, has said. It's been mentioned across some of her 40 books in over 24 years of working in business and is also an asset development expert. We have her on the show today to talk about life and business. And so I want to hear about some of your secrets, some of your successes, and some of the things that you've learned in the bumpy road we call life. Vicki, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hirsch. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation, and I'm looking forward to that. Right on. When you were first an entrepreneur, you were uh, pretty young. Is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, I stumbled into entrepreneurship at 10 years old, and I built my first business at 10 years old, and it lasted for two years. And it was, you know, it was a, I literally was living in San Francisco. That's where, you know, I grew up in California. And I was standing on the street thinking, how could I make some money? How could I make some money? How could I make some money? And a lemonade stand never interested me. Then suddenly I got this half of an idea. And before I even thought about it or expanded on it, I just went to the house next door to me. And if you lived in San Francisco, you know, it's like track housing. The houses are stuck together down. It's like row homes in Philadelphia. And so there was just house after house after house. And I went to the next house and I knocked on the door and this woman answered the door, and there I was, and I was like, hi, my name is Vicky, and I'm collecting Coke bottles because, and she didn't even wait. She was just like, somebody who's going to take the Coke bottles back to the store, and she gave me all of her pop bottles. And I was like, thank you, and then I walked to the next house, realizing I didn't have my spiel you know, done or anything else. And I knocked on that door and I was like, hi, I'm Vicky and I'm collecting bottles. And this big dude had answered the door and he just looked at me and he went and he got all the bottles and he put it in my hands and I was holding them all. And then I walked out to the sidewalk realizing there's only so many bottles I could hold. So I started walking up the hill with the bottles in my hand, headed to the Safeway to turn the bottles in. And then along the way, somebody had left a Safeway cart on the street because what was the tradition back then was you rolled your groceries down the hill and put them in your house, but you didn't want to go walk up the hill and put the cart back. So quite often there was a cart a couple of blocks down the street from that Safeway. So I put all the bottles in there and then I thought, no, I have a cart. I'm going to go fill the cart up. So I turned around went back down two blocks and went to that next house, knocked on the door. And I just went from house to house, to house, to house, to house, to house, to house. And I filled the cart up. In fact, I overfilled the cart up. And what happened? My 10 year old body couldn't push it up the street, but then 
the universe answered, and suddenly my sisters and one friend, so there's three girls that came over, and they were like, where'd you get all these bottles? So we, they helped me push the cart up the road, and we turned all the bottles in, and I gave them a little money. But then the next yeah. day I realized there's the business, and it ended up four of us. We had customers that would wait for us. We saved the bottles for you. And we would literally for two years in all the neighborhoods, pick up the bottles, take it back up, redeem them. And that was the first business I had. And, you know, for two years before I did something else. Well, first of all, if you're going to, if you're going to be able to afford to live in San Francisco, you need to start working by the age of 10. (laughs) That's, that's first of all. Second, you, you, you're, you have a claim to fame that, you were able to expand your business on the day you opened your doors. You already like needed that. to bring partners in yep, just to, just to get the day done. But what you didn't share was what you, what you wanted the money for. What was it that you, cause you're standing on the street corner. Thinking no, I was like money. any, I was like any 10 year old kid. I wanted the money for whatever I wanted it for jacks or balloons or new clothing or ice cream cone, you know, whatever a 10 year old wants. I, I didn't have a sculpted, you know, hi, I, I want to save now for my 401k later. I just had, you know, regular kid ideas and the, I just was acting on the idea I had. And it was where I cut my teeth, where I made some mistakes. But when you're little, you're resilient. And what that did for me was help me trust my instincts. That was the big lesson. Trust that instincts. And I learned how to create relationships with people in the neighborhood. But trusting your instincts, that's a skill set unto itself. What was a mistake that you that you made, and what was a situation where you had to really trust your instincts? I think the biggest mistake I made was right in the beginning, <clears throat> and you know it was failing forward, but in the beginning, when I did not have my script out when i didn't when I just went and knocked on the next door and said, "Hi, I'm Vicky, and I'm doing this, I didn't have something to say. I didn't have the thing fully thought out. And then when I got all the bottles in my hand, I didn't think about that too. I just remember at one point having so many bottles, I was just juggling them, hoping not to drop them on the way to the store. When I found the cart, I felt relieved. But you know, it lets you know that everything is figure outable along the way. And then when I overfilled the cart, I mean, I was struggling. If those, if my sisters and that friend didn't come over, I wouldn't have been able I don't know how I was going to get the cart up. I mean, I was really struggling to push that cart up. And there was all of us just tugging the cart to the top. And you learn the lesson right then that everything takes people. So the thing about mistakes when you're 10 years old is that you're too innocent to beat yourself up. You're just solving the problem at 10 years old. You're not like, oh, you idiot. I can't believe you didn't do this. Oh, And people beat themselves up out of their success, out of their dream life. And at 10, you're just like, how do I get this done? You know, you have kind of the give it that old college try kind of thing. And um, I learned also that fairness was a big deal. I think the biggest lesson I learned was at one point we had four carts. Each girl had a cart. We knew not to overfill it. But you never knew when you went to somebody's house where you're going to get a nickel bottle, a 10-cent bottle, or a 15-cent bottle. 
So it didn't matter. We just, everybody worked the same. We took it all up and then we divvied the money equally, regardless of whether you had a 15, more 15 cent bottles than everyone else. We never did that. We were very fair all the way through. And I think that's what kept us together. And we'd fall, are we doing bottles this weekend? Okay. And that was it. And, uh, it was kind of an innocent long-term business. And it took me a lot, many years, um, before I realized that that was the first business I'd done. I just was like, this is how I make some money. I don't babysit. I'm smarter than babysitting. You know, that's what I thought. My first business was a greeting card company. I don't have a, a recollection of really making money from that, but I had one, I'm a writer. One of my best friends is a very talented artist, cartoonist, mm -hmm. and our other friend is just a brilliant numbers person. So it really was just, you know, we wanted to draw and I wanted to write funny things. And, you know, and my other friend was like, well, it should be a business. And then we did the same thing with, a well, one of the partners was the same, where we did birthday parties. Yeah. And that was an actual business. We did, we did birthday parties. We had a magician. We, did, you know, I hosted. I gather something like that. But, but it always was about showtime for me, and not the nuts and bolts of profits. And yeah. you know, if I were doing that business today, either one of those businesses, I would be much more strict about cutting my deal yeah. and making sure that this was a profitable enterprise. And that we you know, were working. Hirsch, that's that's really something important you just said. I I think we've made business so complicated. We've made it so complicated. And in that simplistic view, you took three creativities, put them in one, created other businesses that were simple and fun and provide income. And sometimes now I look at, okay, I got publishing companies and I, I have this, you know, coaching company, and then I have this mentoring company and I'm like, everything can be so complicated. And in the beginning, we're so simple about doing it. And I, I think going back to that simplicity is key. And I think that point you just made was really important. Thanks, Vicki. So tell me about the coaching and mentoring aspect of what you're doing because I find that fascinating you know the ability mm. to, to to share and and transmit your acumen you know it's interesting because I did coaching for a very short time I'm definitely consulting and I consult small businesses and family businesses and things like that and what I think or what I truly believe is everybody has a message inside them and your choice to get your message out to the public, whether it's through books or interviews or speaking or whatever your message is, that transformation that you can provide people. And it has to be a decent transformation, not like a general public transformation. And general public transformations are the things you hear over and 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 over again that people try to use to make themselves sound smarter and be smarter. What happens when you dig a little deeper is that you find that you are what your core essence or your values are and how your perspective is. And so Gary Vaynerchuk always says, you know, you have your perspective and that's a key indicator of how you can serve the world. And so there's a difference between a perspective and a belief. A perspective has experience with it. So 
if you had to start a another or if somebody wanted to start a card making business or a a birthday party clown business you'd be the guy to go to right so you'd be able to go here's step 1 step 2 step 3 that's the difference between perspective and just having uh, and you know what to look out for. You'd be able to say, don't make this mistake, don't make this mistake, or, and then add this because it'll quantum leap your profits. This is what consulting and mentoring is. And so mentoring, I do mentoring now because you have to be at a certain income level before mentoring happens. And you're like, okay, I want to go to the next income level. And consulting is more like, here's the hole in your boat. If you fix this hole in the boat, you're great to go across and your business will just be fine. You're kind of looking to solve a problem or maybe add a division to somebody's company or maybe upgrade something for them. And all three of those tactics, all the three of those things takes experience. So the way I get my message out you know, I obviously, with 40 books later, am a book writer, and that's the way I get my message out. But the reason I write books, the reason I do that is because my client reads voraciously. They don't go to TikTok. They're not on Facebook. They listen to podcasts voraciously. They like books on tape voraciously, and they read. So they may have queued up in their in their you know, podcasting, they have their 25 different favorite podcasts that they listen to weekly. They drive and listen to that. They're just constantly in that learning mode. So if my client's there, then I need to be where they are. So, you know, it's kind of like if you wanted to be at a birthday party, you wouldn't be on Amazon shopping for books. You'd be where your audience is. You'd be looking for mom groups with moms and kids. And so you just have to know where your client is. My client is a reader and an assimilator of information and all of it nonfiction. There is not, hi, I read fiction. It's, they're nonfiction readers. Yeah. And that's, that's really why I do it. Well, I, have no, I no longer have any interest in the birthday clown racket. I'm, I'm out of it. I'm out of it. It's become such a cesspool. It really used to be people that took pride in their this clownsmanship. This is where the truth does taste funny. Right, right. People used to take pride in their clownsmanship. Now they go to this college or that college, Ringling Brothers. They're not learning anything. They don't know anything about truly clowning in the trenches. So, you know, I'm, I'm over it. But it was an experience. I've t I took it as far as I could which was probably about $412. And that was probably, that was good enough, good enough for me. With, with consulting, traditionally, there's a specific problem, right, that the client has, some specific thing. It's not like a retainer, usually. Like I always work oh, on whatever. Sometimes it's a retainer. I've been on retainer yeah. as a consultant for years. And what, what kinds of needs qualify for that. You know, it's so interesting. Let's talk about that because that's dependent on your skill set. So <clears throat> for instance, you can have an attorney on retainer all the time and you know exactly why you need the attorney. Here's my contracts. Here's my legalities. Here's my LLC. Here's my partnership. Here's my purchase. You know exactly why you have your retainer, your lawyer on retainer. For a consultant, it depends on what you are 
consulting for. So, for example, if you're a technology consultant or you are a medical consultant or you are a business development or an asset consultant, when you're an asset consultant, you have people calling all the time and they're like, this business is in front of me. I need a little due diligence on it to see if it's something I should purchase. And when you're doing the research for them, what you're doing is reporting and saying, well, it has this, it has that, it does have this and it'll need to be rebuilt. This will have to be done with it. It's profitable here and not profitable here. And you would help them make the decision as to whether that business is good enough for them. Then they would move to their attorney who's, you know, if it's a yes, they'll move to that retained attorney and say, I want to purchase this or get this done. Can we get the ball rolling? So it depends on what it is that you're doing. There are just some things where consulting is a one-off thing and some things where consulting is, you know, and you have to position yourself in that market to be a retainer consultant. Yeah. It depends on their team. Essentially you're a part on of what the team. they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What their, what their daily day-to-day -day business is. If they're acquiring properties mm -hmm. and they're acquiring assets, then they're going to yep. need to assess those assets and negotiate those, those contracts on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great advice when it comes to starting a business. And there are so many, there's only so much that an entrepreneur can know, right? Agreed. Entrepreneur has a brilliant idea. They sound it out amongst their, you know, inner circle. They get some really good feedback. They tweak the, the concept or the offering, but they can't necessarily just start the business with the idea, right? In your opinion, what are the ways to go about getting the resources or support to actually turn an idea into a reality? Okay, you asked two questions there. And are you talking about resources as in money or are you talking about resources as in human capital? Both actually. Okay. So depends on what you're starting. If you're starting, I, I love bootstrapping personally because I don't want a debt filled company. If you're however, a real estate investor, then you're, you got to <laughs> get good at debt. We were talking a little bit when we started about creativity and we were talking when we first began the conversation about industry, you know, being industrious, even at a very young age. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the marriage of creativity and business. It would seem that, you know, both, both sides, both hemispheres kind of need the other. But what have you learned over a quarter century of playing in these fields? What have you learned about that marriage between the creative and the and the business. So thank you for that. I think creativity comes from the divine. I think that creativity can be auspicious coincidence, uh, a particular meeting. Um, you know, I've had ideas for a book where I've been at a dinner party sitting at a table and somebody has said something like, you know, I wish I had blah, 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 or Wow, can you believe this is such a hoax? Da, 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 da. And the book title for that came right to me from listening and paying attention. But what I learned from listening and paying attention is what the world wants to know. What do they want to know? 
Like right here, what I'm noticing is what questions is he asking? What, what are the questions he wants you to know? Because you are the representative of your audience. So right. your audience is asking those questions too. You know what your audience wants to hear. So now I'm hearing you, but I'm hearing the words and the views of an entire audience. This is what I want them to, this is what they want to know. In my head, I'm making mental notes right now. So creativity is one, the ability to pay attention and be in the moment. Number two, the ability to receive somebody else's opinion, somebody else's outlook and somebody else's perspective because what they're telling you is what they want to know, where they're stuck, how they're stuck, how they want help out. And to, to me, it's like opportunity is all around you and all you have to do is pay attention. Then you apply your skill sets to an opportunity. So for me, believe it or not, I got a degree in accounting and finance. No, I, I never thought ever that I would write books. It was never in my, I want to be an author and have a lot of books out. Never I thought I was going to ask if you, if you did, if you wrote in school, if you did, you know, if you were a storyteller. I did terrible in school. I was not a good student. And I, I was a hyperactive, they called it hyperactivity back then. They didn't call it ADHD, but you know, I, I had a very hard time concentrating and then creativity also comes in the form of knowingness, like, and knowingness is more of a, I don't want to say psychic skill, but I'm going to say an intuitive skill. It's like, you know how. I don't know if you're a parent or not, but yes. you know how yeah. when your kids come home and they have this new crush and maybe a new boyfriend or girlfriend and you're like, ooh, this is going to go south quickly, but you're a parent. So you're like, hi, it's nice to meet you. And, you know, in, the, in your mind, you're thinking whoever my son or daughter loves, that's who I love. And when they don't love you anymore, neither do I. And you're really clear about, you know, the mistake they're going to make, but you have to let them make that mistake. You just have to let them be who they are and do what they do. Well, you know, it's the same with information coming through you. When the information comes through you, you understand, you get a feeling, you know man, I'd be a good clown, man, that's going to be fun, man, I can do this and this and this. Now you could let everybody in the world talk you out of it. Hirsch, go get a real job. Why are you doing this? This isn't blah, blah. It could be a million things you're going to talk about, but you got to feel that feeling and trust that inner gut. That's your own inner genius trying to connect with you. And if you dismiss it, you're dismissing your own inner genius, your own destiny. You're throwing that out. It doesn't matter whether you're a success or failure. It's a matter of, can you listen? And here's the thing, that voice is training you just like you're that learning curve. Can you listen to me and fail and still listen to me? Can you listen to me and fail again or struggle a little bit and listen to me still? Can you listen to me and make a little bit of money even while this joker over here is making more money than you are and you're like, hey man, I'm better than this guy. Can you still listen to me? Because after a while, as soon as you get done absolutely surrendering to that inner voice, 
it will place something and say, go move on this right now. And you know what? You'll do it right then. And you'll have huge success then. But you have to get to the point where it can trust you and you trust it implicitly. Implicitly. Now, I want to tell yeah. you something. Re I have had yes. 18 businesses, 18. Six have failed miserably. I mean, just burnt to the crisp. And 13 have been very <laughs> successful. And those ones that I, I, that failed all came from a place of my brain. I didn't listen to my intuition. All the 13 that were successful were the ones that I followed that came from that intuitive inner genius. And what I realize now is I do not start a business or invest in anything until I hear that inner voice talking. If it doesn't talk, I'm out. Well, I think what you said is, is brilliant. And what it made me think is how it's not only about trust. It's about recognition of the voice because mm -hmm. people could say to you, oh, you know, don't, don't, that's a pipe dream. That's silly. And, and in your, in your heart, you're saying, no, it isn't a pipe dream. It's exactly what I should be doing. But, but it, that may not be your inner voice. Your inner voice may be saying something somewhat different, not exactly don't believe it, don't chase your dreams, but something else is in store for you. There's something different in store for you. And I look back on my youth and my professional trajectory and the creative things and stand-up comedy and all these things. And I think what I started to realize as I did, a, you know, one thing I'll say about COVID is I was able to do a lot of work on myself. You just spend a lot of time with yourself and Absolutely. think things. And, and so, you know, take some classes, do some, do some, some work. And what I realized is that I wasn't there. I was hearing two voices and I was trying to listen to both of them, but neither one of them were the one that is really my inner voice. Yes. And so it wasn't a struggle, but certainly wasn't the fault of the people who said, don't follow your dreams or whatever they were saying, because yeah. it wouldn't have mattered if the right voice had said, here's what you need to do. And I was somehow, I guess, subverting or blocking my own inner voice because I didn't like the sound of it. I didn't like what it was saying exactly, but it was a hybrid. It was a hybrid of, uh, it was a hybrid of what I now call humor and humanity. It was this kind of, it's part business, it's part comedy, it's part being a good listener and listening to stories that aren't always so fun to hear. Some, some are sad yes. and some are, you know, and so it was empathy. It was all those things, but, but it wasn't in the initial, I think when people push against you, you push back or you give in, but there's a third option, which is to quiet down and listen love and that. don't react. Yes. I love that. What you just said was so beautiful and it's so profound. And the thing that I'm, the reason I'm successful in my life is because at 10 years old, the thing I just told you to do is what I did. I trusted what came through to me. I didn't even think about it. I just went to the next door. I knocked on the door and said, Hey, I didn't even have my script full. So they say, you know, put out your minimum viable product in the world. Right. And that trusting that, that trusting my own inner voice, that's what's made me successful. It's also helped me be safe in the world.
It's also helped me get out of bad relationships in business where I'm like, yeah, my gut check, I got a red flag. I, I listen to that moment to moment to moment because the thing that's guiding me isn't going away. It's always going to guide me. It's always going to be right 100% of the time. It's always going to be my best friend 100% of the time. It's always going to be the thing that if I allow my ego to step aside long enough to listen, and the thing is, when it comes in, I act on it right then. So even now, if I hear that book title, I don't go, God, that would be a great book title. Hey, can I have another cup of coffee? I don't do that. I grab my phone and I'm put that title in. When that voice is talking to you, what clouds it, and this is such an important secret. This is the most important secret. Hirsch, most people, they want and want us to want a sense of belonging is so great that they care about what other people think. They want to be part of the the group. They want to fit in. They want to follow the trend. And they've gotten all of their inner genius following that sense of belonging. What they don't feel like is they don't feel like they're worthy. They don't feel like they have something to offer people. So if they belong to a group or if they have that belonging, they at least get a false sense of self-esteem. And that false sense of self-esteem makes them feel good for about this long. Like, hey, you got those new Nikes? So do I. Hey, you drive this car? So do I. And that gives them that sense of belonging. People who are successful rise above the sense of needing to belong and ask a different question. They say, how can I serve? How can I serve? Not how can I belong, but how can I serve? And the second you trust yourself in that inner question, because the second you answer, how can I serve? People aren't going to tell you. The divine intuitive is going to tell you this is how you can serve. And you have to trust that you're funny enough and clever enough to be the best clown. And your market that you're serving is children who are innocent and maybe have stressful lives at home. And for that moment on their birthday, you're making them feel seen, special, and loved. And they're going to remember that at my at my. I'm 30 years old and I'm talking about my past birthday and I'm going to go, mom, do you remember when I, when I turned seven years old and you got the clown that made the clown balloons for me? And I love that poodle I got that memory set there forever. And what it tells them is there's good people and good things in the world. And if you don't think that's an important message to give a young child, you have missed the whole ball of wax. So that sense of belonging, know that every ego is like, oh, I, I need a sense of belonging. I want to wear the, it's like in high school, how do you fit in? We still do that in adulthood. But when you move past that and say, how can I serve? You've risen above your ego and said, I don't need a sense of belonging. I need a sense of purpose. 
And that purpose means you serve somehow. And that's how you become successful and begin to listen to your inner voice versus all the people who say, well, you got to drive that car to be cool. You got to have that the house to be cool. You got to be in this neighborhood to be cool. And suddenly you start living your purpose instead of your sense of belonging. Wow, that's wonderful. That's so on the money, no, no pun intended. It, it's when we when we think about how how often we're in a position where we're like, oh, I have to have it all. You can have it all. You can have it all. That's a, and then what's what are the two most popular phrases in in human history? Are I, I want to have it all, and what's it all for? And and they 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 ask the first one, right, Vicky? They ask the first one when they start there when they when they when they just he just did the truth tasting funny. Yeah. But it is kind of something that occurs to me, but only because of, of what you said. And wow. Okay, so now I got to read some of your books. Now, knowing what you know about me just from our brief conversation here, and, and since I do represent the audience, what would you recommend? Now we've talked a little bit, you know us a little bit. What would you recommend that we read if we want to di- dive into the, the Vicki Helm uh, world uh, canon? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just released my latest, my 41st book about um, 48 hours ago, and I it's free right now. So I want to give it free to your audience. If you go to Smart Cashflow Book, you'll see the book that is Cashflow Mojo, How to Get Rich, Stay Rich and Become Financially Free. And that book is free right now. I just wanted to get it out to as many people as I can for free. So it's smartcashflowbook.com. And you can get your free copy of that book right there. And I would start there because it doesn't matter what age you are. You can become financially independent. Like I had a client, I'm not kidding, who is 80 years old, 80 years old. And in three, about three and a half years, we worked together and she was financially independent by the end of the three and a half years. And she had legacy to leave as well. And she learned the principles of building self-directed wealth, which is what you're going to learn inside this Cashflow Mojo book. And I come from a really different background. My parents made their money illegally. And I talk about that in this book. And I took a lot of the principles of what they did illegally and made it so that it is legal, ethical, moral to do. And it's a kind of a contrarian view of wealth building that I think absolutely our forefathers used and and is applicable now. And the reason I put it out, it's a series. There's going to be Cashflow Mojo 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. But 1.0 went out there, and I just think everybody in the near future is going to want to have a different perspective of how to protect their wealth and grow their wealth. And that's why I wrote the book. So that's where I would start. Wow. Thank you. So I have to ask, what were your parents doing that was that was illegal? <laughs> Everybody asked that. So, you know, here it is. I don't know that I've actually shared it on a show. Yours may be the first one show okay. I shared on, but it's in the book. So my dad passed away a couple of years ago, and I didn't write this on purpose because my dad was 89, and I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. But 
My dad was the first person who liquidated the THC out of the marijuana plant back in the 60s when it was federal offense so that you could have a, a dropper and put a drop of THC on a cigarette and smoke it and still get the same response as you would by smoking weed. But then he graduated. He was a cooker. He made cocaine over the years. And then, you know, so he was a developer of that weed and cocaine thing in in the house. So there was a time I remember when we lived somewhere and we were never allowed to go in the kitchen, never, ever, ever go in the kitchen because there was all the glass jars and all the stuff that made the the THC and the other things out. And um, he did make some, you know, what did they call it? Microdot acid, uh, things like that, where you could buy. Oh, oh, that you you eat off the candy? It was the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he did it uh, back then all the way into for many, many years, actually. And so, uh, yes. And, And yes, he did spend a little bit of time in jail as well. Well, he and I could have partnered on the birthday parties and probably had some really interesting <laughs> events for the parents, of course, if, but hopefully the kids wouldn't get a hold of the, the role of, of candied, candied uh, well, uh, hallucinogenics. You know, but I wouldn't do it now, but what was interesting about growing up this so way? So you're saying no, Vicki? You're passing no. on the, on the uh, business idea of... Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, passing that by, especially good, where kids are concerned. I'm, you know... Good inner voice, fierce, yes. Fierce about protecting children. But what's interesting about growing up that way is that, I, I'm not kidding when I say I saw boatloads of cash. I saw more cash than you would not believe. It just... And in my mind, I thought, well, it doesn't matter being rich because you can't spend it anyway. But I would see burlap bags thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, just so much money you would not believe it. But when you have that money and you earn it illegally, then what happens is you can't go out and buy that house or buy that boat or buy that car because the IRS would be like, how can you afford this if you have no job and no business? So I did learn how my father laundered all that money, et cetera. But in the time I learned about it, What he used to teach me in money skills would blow your mind. And what happens was he had to learn to protect his wealth without putting it on grid. On grid meaning IRAs and homes and this and things that you would be normally used to. And I thought at the time he wasn't, I I did know he was teaching me something that I needed to learn. He was just teaching me how he did things. And I swung the other way. I went and did the financial analyst thing. I had the 6, the 63, the 26, all the financial licenses where you sold it and everything else. And what I realized is there's bad guys here and bad guys here. And there are good guys here and there are good guys here. Like now I, I, I live in Colorado. So um, my dad went to jail because he had a joint in his pocket and he spent a couple of years for a joint in his pocket. Now it's illegal. It's, I mean, it's legal and you can smoke at any time over the age of 21 and um, have it at your house. And it's a great painkiller and it helps all kinds of things. And they're studying it and they found out that it helps children, a certain type with children with, with, you know, epilepsy and things like that. But at the time 
it was illegal and that was that. So I realized, you know, there's not, there's not truth on, there's a lot of manipulation. What I want to do is things ethically, legally, and morally, because if I make the money, I want to be able to enjoy it the way I want to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're going to learn in the book. (laughs) And now there are, well, I really look forward to reading it. Now there are, there are still people in prison for nonviolent, you know, offenses for, for cannabis related, uh, quote unquote crimes. And, uh, I'll just throw a shout out to the last prisoner project that, uh, is working on getting all of, all of those people freed. And, uh, you know, there are always bad actors on, on both sides of an equation and circumstances often what places them there and judgment also could, but still, you know, there's an emphasis on right and wrong. That's decided not by, not by us always. And certainly by the people with the keys, you know, that's right. That's (laughs) right. I mean, we just went through the 2008 crash and the manipulators who created that crash, nobody is there. Nothing happened to them. I'm not even sure they got a slap on the hand, you know, so there's a lot of misconduct. And so what happens is it really is down to the individual. Do you have values and character that allow you to, and I'm very strict on that. You know, when I was growing up, I was super embarrassed about, what my parents did and I didn't want anyone to know. And I wanted to be as far away from it as I possibly could. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. It was weird because although my dad was doing this, my parents were like, don't you do drugs? Don't you do this? Don't you do that? Don't do any of it. And I grew up with that kind of, you know, preached in my head and watched at the same time. So, you know, there's kind of the dichotomy of having both, but What I learned about wealth and what I learned about how to, you know, how to protect your wealth, because believe it or not, the number one thing that makes people broke isn't having a lot of money. It's the people who want your money after you have it. There are fees and taxes and advisors and money management and all of this. That whole industry is made to vacuum your hard-earned cash from you. And, you know, there's such a small percentage of people who, you know, they're like, hi, I saved all my life. I know more people who saved all their life in their retirement accounts and lost everything than people who saved in their retirement accounts and hit it big. You know, I've seen Mm -hmm. people lose millions and millions of dollars going the way of the markets and things like that. And I think there are other and not just high NFTs and cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's there. That's new. But that's as volatile as the markets are right now. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And sometimes it's manipulated like the markets are. So how do you self-direct your wealth and actually keep yourself wealthy? What are people doing to do and maintain that? And that's what the book is written about. And it's also in 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0. I didn't want to like, here's a 900-page book. Here's everything. Good reading. <laughs> you know, so I broke it down into a series of three books that are coming out. And I think it's time that people get the curtains lifted back to see where money is, where they're manipulated out of their money, literally 
legally contracted, manipulated out of their money and how to protect themselves from doing that or having harm with that. Vicki Helm, thank you so much for being on Truth Tastes Funny. And if ever there was an apt episode to demonstrate just how funny all of this tastes, it's the stuff we talked about today. Yeah, I've enjoyed my time with you. I just really appreciate somebody out there really giving the opportunity for people to find out a different point of view. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.